I'm Paul Kinsey. I've been a Baltimore restaurant worker off and on, uh, but more on than off over the past seven years. In that period of time, I've worked for three employers. Uh, all three employers have been a little bit dicey. There were things to object to in all of them. Two of the three engaged in wage theft, and that is to say they stole wages that belonged to the employees. Wage theft is at least potentially and sometimes actually a grave practice. It can have really serious, really grave human consequences. I'll talk to you separately after Saru a little bit later and describe the Baltimore restaurant scene, but the consequences of this uh, can be serious. For this reason, it gives me a lot of pleasure to introduce our speaker tonight for the reason that this practice is morally serious and other related practices are morally serious. Saru's intellectual work, I think, is unique in bringing these practices to public attention, putting them into the public consciousness. Uh, they could not exist if they were seen. Hence the title of the book, right, Behind the Kitchen Door. The practices are hidden, they're screened from us, they're behind something. Otherwise, they couldn't exist. Her practical work is also very important and effective. Saru is a co-founder of Restaurant Opportunity Centers United, Rock. Rock has done important work in a number of practical areas. It has recovered more than $7 million in wages that have been stolen from employees, and it has brought about other important workplace changes in restaurants. In addition, Rock publishes a diner's guide which lists the fairly smallish number of identified ethical restaurants and the larger number of restaurants that uh, have ethical problems. Uh, it's weak on Maryland. There's more work to do. If you have information, please get in touch with us. Uh, outside, there's a flyer which has the email address of uh, Rock Baltimore, the Baltimore Rock affiliate, on it. So this practical work also, and there's analysis, there's different categories of information with respect to which you get knowledge about the restaurants. So this work also is important in bringing these matters into public consciousness. Rock also has cooperated with others and, and helped set up a number of worker-owned restaurants. I think myself this is a very promising model. These restaurants can be net contributors to the community in ways in which some other restaurants are net detriments to the community. In addition to all that, I think that Saru's work is going to resonate and have effects more widely than just in the restaurant workplace. She's done work that has importance for other aspects of the food system, and I believe that her work will make changes throughout the food system not only in restaurants. But I think it's going to be important more widely even than that. I think that the work is going to reform the low-wage service economy. And this is important in the world that we live in today. We've moved away from a manufacturing economy. In the old days, there were some hard-won, but they were achieved, some hard-won protections for workers in the manufacturing economy. If the, if the workplace was unethical, they could make complaints about that. They would be protected against retaliation. They had union kinds of, of institutions for making those complaints and protecting them against retaliation. They also had benefits 
that could be expected to give them a secure future, that could provide for them as inevitable life events occurred, as they aged, if they got ill, if they died and left survivors, would provide for the survivors. And these jobs have largely been lost. We've moved into a service economy, and as we've moved into a service economy, these protections have also been lost. I believe that the work that Sarah is doing has a lot of potential to reform the structure of the economy that we have today, and reforming the structure of the economy that we have today really means reshaping the society that we live in. The issues are that fundamental. So for all of these reasons, because of what I take to be her uniquely important theoretical work, intellectual work, because of her also very important and effective practical work, because of the gravity of the issues that we're going to be discussing today, and because I believe that this work will resonate and have effects widely, will restructure parts of the economy, will re reshape the society that we live in. For all of these reasons, it's my great pleasure to introduce our speaker today, Sarah Jairaman. Hi. <laughs> Good evening. Can you hear me? It's great to be here, and thank you so much to the Enoch Pratt Library for having us and to Paul for introducing me and getting engaged here with restaurant workers here in Baltimore. It's really a pleasure to be here with you. Um, that film, wasn't that film amazing? That film was created by a restaurant worker named Seku Luke, who's also an amazing videographer, and actually kind of told the stories of my book as he saw them actually created that whole production as he saw them every day in the restaurant. But I have to confess that actually me, myself, I did not know the things that were portrayed in this uh, video 12 years ago. 12 years ago, I was living in New York City. I had just graduated from law school. Uh, I was actually working at a small worker center out in Long Island, New York. And I was actually organizing factory workers and custodial workers and even some restaurant workers. And every evening I would come back into Manhattan or into Brooklyn where I lived and I would enjoy the most amazing cuisine that New York City has to offer. I would eat great Asian fusion food, vegetarian, vegan, raw food. You know, I would try everything and anything. I was definitely a foodie. And as a New Yorker, sometimes you eat out three times a day, and I would do that. I was definitely a foodie. But I have to admit that in all those years of eating out prior to 12 years ago, I cannot actually describe to you one person who touched my food, one person who cooked it, one person who brought it to my table. Those people were invisible to me. And I would argue that's true for most Americans and that actually Americans eat out, we eat out as Americans more frequently than anybody else on earth. And it isn't just the frequency with which we eat out, it's those moments that we actually eat out in. We tend to celebrate our most amazing life moments in restaurants, weddings, anniversaries, birthdays, you know, special meetings that we're having. I was proposed to in a restaurant. I'll bet most people in this room can recall some very special, wonderful, intimate moment in a restaurant, but most of us cannot recall in those special, wonderful, intimate moments the people who touched our food. They've been invisible to us, and I would argue that's very, very purposeful. 
That was me. I knew nothing. I saw nothing 12 years ago. And then 12 years ago, 9-11 happened. And on September 11th, 2001, in New York City, there was actually a restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center, Tower One. It was on the 107th floor. It was above the clouds and certainly above where the plane hit that morning. And so 73 workers died that morning in the restaurant. They either jumped to their deaths or they were incinerated inside the restaurant. And about 13,000 restaurant workers lost their jobs. Now that restaurant was unique, very unique, because it actually had a union inside of it. Less than 0.001% of all restaurant workers in America are unionized. So this very unique restaurant with this very small union inside of it, called, the, the union called me and called one of the head waiters from Windows on the World, a man named Fekak Mamdu, and asked us to start a little relief center in the aftermath of the tragedy. We called it Rock, the Restaurant Opportunity Center. And what started as a little relief center post 9-11 has now grown into a national restaurant workers organization with about 10,000 restaurant worker members in 32 cities across the country. About 100 employer partners, employers who are doing the right thing, providing good wages and good working conditions. They range from celebrity chefs like Tom Colicchio, star of Top Chef, who's actually a really great employer all the way down to small mom-and-pop restaurants who are trying to do the right thing by their workers. And we've also organized several thousand consumer members. And we've won some things, actually, over the last, now, 12 years. We've won about 15 campaigns against very large, high-profile restaurant companies, where we've won about $8 million in stolen tips and wages. And much more important to us than the money has been the policy changes that we've won. We've won raises and benefits and promotions, paid sick days. We've won job security and grievance procedures. We've won better things for workers, better policies for workers in large restaurant companies that are setting the standard in their local region. And we've also actually opened our own worker-owned restaurant. So the restaurant that was in that video is actually our restaurant, a worker-owned restaurant. That's not how we treat our workers. That was staged. Um, we've opened a second such restaurant in Detroit, Michigan. And inside those restaurants, we've created a training program that now trains about a thousand workers a year to move up the ladder to livable wage jobs. We've also done a ton of research on the industry, and we've won some policy victories. We actually made it illegal in the city of Philadelphia to deduct credit card processing fees from workers' tips, which unfortunately is legal everywhere else, which is why we encourage you to leave your tips in cash rather than on a credit card. We raised the wage in New York State for tipped workers. We've won some things. But to me, the most incredible part of the last 12 years has been getting to know the stories of thousands and thousands and thousands of restaurant workers, some of whose stories I tell in the book. And to learn all of the things I never knew that were happening behind the kitchen door. You know, when I came to New York, I was told you should tip about 20%. That's what most good New Yorkers do, tip about 20% when you eat out. So I did. I had no idea that the tip that I was leaving was not on top of a wage. It was the wage itself because of a man named Herman Cain. Do you all remember Herman Cain? Herbert Cain tried to run for president on, president on the Republican ticket, failed. But 
In his earlier days, he was the head of something called the National Restaurant Association, which we call the Other NRA, a very powerful lobbying group. Actually, it's been named the 10th most powerful lobbying group in Congress that represents the interests of the Fortune 500 restaurant companies in America. As the head of the NRA, Herman Cain struck a deal with Congress, saying that they, the NRA, would not oppose an increase in the overall minimum wage as long as the minimum wage for tipped workers stayed frozen forever. And so it has been stuck at the federal level at $2.13 an hour for the last 22 years. Now it's a little bit better here in Maryland at 3.63, but it is nothing to live on anywhere. And it is because of the power of this industry that is essentially struck a deal that says we should not have to pay our workers wages. You, customers, you should pay our workers wages for us. Something I didn't know. I knew something about health and safety in restaurants. I grew up in LA and in LA they actually put letter grades in restaurant windows to tell you about the sanitation of the restaurant. I thought I knew something about sanitation. I had no idea that 90% of restaurant workers in America don't have paid sick days, which means two-thirds report cooking, preparing, and serving our meals when they are sick, with true stories from my book, H1N1, better known as swine flu, or pink eye, or hepatitis A, or typhoid fever, all true stories of real people I can introduce you to. In fact, the Center for Disease Control reports that 50 to 90% of all norovirus outbreaks, norovirus is the winter stomach flu, 50 to 90% of all norovirus outbreaks can be traced back to sick restaurant workers. I thought I knew something about competition in restaurants. We've all seen the shows Top Chef, Iron Chef, you know, it's gotten kind of out of control on the Food Network and on Bravo. A lot of us watch these shows. I had no idea that for the vast majority of workers in this industry, getting to even a livable wage job is a matter of their skin color or their gender. There are right now over 10 million restaurant workers in America. Actually, one in 12 Americans right now works in the restaurant industry. It is one of the only industries to grow over the last couple of years of economic crisis rather than decline. Unfortunately, it holds another accolade. It is the absolute lowest paying employer in the United States. Seven of the 11 lowest paying jobs in the United States and the two absolute lowest paying jobs in the US, lower than farm worker jobs, lower than day laborer jobs, lower than any other job you might think of as a low paying job, the two absolute lowest paying jobs in America are the people who serve and touch our food. And it is entirely due to the power of an industry lobby called the National Restaurant Association that decade after decade has said, we should not have to pay our workers wages. In fact, we suffer from uniquely thin profit margins, so we should be able to pay the lowest wages in America. In fact, this industry enjoys a 4 to 5% profit margin nationally, which may sound small until you know that Walmart, which is generally considered to be one of the most profitable companies in the world, has a 1% profit margin, which means that the restaurant industry, the absolute lowest paying employer in the US, enjoys four to five times the profit margin of the largest corporation in the world. They're doing quite well. 
But as they've continued to grow, wages have stagnated in this industry. Workers are struggling with no paid sick days. And who are we talking about exactly? When I say workers in this industry earn a tipped minimum wage of 213 or 363, anywhere between two and four dollars around the country, 70% of workers who earn that tip minimum wage are women. Women who work at the IHOP and the Applebee's and the Olive Garden and the Red Lobster and Denny's. I say this because the industry likes to say, nobody's earning 213. These are wealthy steakhouse servers rolling in tips, and they paint the picture of a tall white man who's doing great and rolling in tips, who shouldn't be paid anymore because he's getting a lot of money. When in fact, 70% of these workers are women and they work at these restaurants, and they suffer from three times the poverty rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce, and they use food stamps at double the rate of the rest of the U.S. workforce, which means the women who put food on our tables cannot afford to eat themselves. One of the stories in my book is a woman named Claudia Munoz, an immigrant from Mexico who ended up becoming a real leader in my organization, Rock. And when she was in graduate school in Houston, Texas, she worked at the IHOP, earning $2.13 an hour. Now, the law says that restaurants are supposed to make sure that tips make up the difference between that tip minimum wage of $2.13 and the regular minimum wage of $7.25. The U.S. Department of Labor reports an 84% violation rate with regard to employers actually making up that difference. And in fact, in Claudia's case, the IHOP, mega corporation that it is, and even though it is illegal, said to Claudia, we don't want to have to be held liable for making sure that tips make up that difference, so we're going to report that you're earning 725 regardless of what you actually earn. Which means Claudia was taxed at 725 and like most tipped workers, received a pay stub every week that said, this is not a paycheck. And it said zero. Because when you earn 213 or 363, as any tipped worker will know, your wages are so low, they go entirely to taxes. And you live off of your tips. And Claudia lived off of her tips, which were sometimes $5 an hour, sometimes $4 an hour, sometimes $0 an hour when she was doing side work or the restaurant was slow. And Claudia was hungry. She says, Saru, I'm ashamed to admit it, but I would wait to get to the restaurant to eat pancakes because I couldn't afford to eat. And like the other women who were serving alongside me, we would wait and we would flirt with the management or the cooks to get extra food to eat because we were so hungry. One night, Claudia worked a full night's shift at the IHOP in Houston, Texas, and at the end of the meal, a couple walked out, at the end of the night, I'm sorry, a couple walked out without paying the bill. Now, the IHOP, mega corporation that it is, and even though it is illegal, said to Claudia, we don't want to be held, you know, you have to be held liable for that bill, which actually was $20 more than all the tips Claudia had earned that entire night, which meant that Claudia ended up paying $20 for the luxury of having worked a full night's shift at the IHOP in Houston, Texas. 
And I cannot tell you how many times I've heard that same story. I will bet there are people in this audience who can tell that same story. In fact, I've spoken in large audiences where state legislators get up and say, that used to happen to me. All growing up, the bar would make me pay for restaurants, for customers walking out without paying the bill. I can't tell you how many people have told me that experience because the restaurant industry is 10 million people. It is so many of us. It is many of us in this room. It is our friends. It is our family members. It is our sisters, our brothers, our mothers. It is so many people who actually work for the legislators who are making the deals with the NRA to ensure that these workers are the lowest paid workers in America. And the industry says it's okay because these are young people moving on to something better. Which I find hilarious because essentially the industry is saying Everything else out there is better than us, right? That's essentially what they're saying. The truth is that 60% of restaurant workers are over the age 24, and the median age is in the late 30s. One in four restaurant workers are parents. One in 10 are single mothers. These are mostly adults with families, with children, trying to survive off of tips or the measly minimum wage that you get in the back of the house. These women and men are trying to put food on their families' tables, and the majority of them are actually not trying to move on to something else. The majority are actually professionals who take great pride in food service and hospitality, who want to be treated as the professionals that they are. Another story in my book. Ung Chang, immigrant from Korea, actually was a very highly intelligent person, went to University of California at Berkeley. He, they grew up in California. Went to UC Berkeley, which is a pretty hard school to get into. Got an engineering degree and graduated with honors, with an engineering degree. But Ung knew in his heart that his passion was in food and food service, in hospitality, and so Ung decided to become a bartender in a fine dining restaurant in California. Now in California, there is no difference between the wage for tipped workers and non-tipped workers. Everybody gets the same wage of $8 an hour. Actually, we were part of a coalition that just raised it to $10 an hour. And California is the largest and fastest growing restaurant industry in the United States. In fact, it has the city with the largest restaurant industry in the US, Los Angeles, which has a larger restaurant industry than New York City. It is thriving. In fact, there are seven states in the United States that have the same wage for tipped and non-tipped workers. Five of those seven states have faster restaurant industry growth rates than the restaurant industry growth rate nationally. So the argument that raising this wage from 213 to the regular minimum wage, paying tipped workers a stable base wage would kill the industry, just doesn't pan out if you were to come back with me, I live in Oakland, come back with me to California and see the most vibrant restaurant industry you'll ever see. Or come to San Francisco, where the, you have the highest minimum wage in the United States of $10.55, and you cannot trip without running into a restaurant. The city industry is thriving. So the argument that Raising these wages would kill the industry just doesn't hold true. And in fact, in Ung's case, he was doing quite well, earning a base wage, earning tips as a bartender in a fine dining restaurant, decided he wanted to be in the center of it all, 
actually work in our nation's capital, serve his country, serve Congress members and senators, decided to move to Washington, D.C., got a job at a restaurant, serving Congress members, senators, people from the White House, and earning the District of Columbia tip minimum wage of $2.77. Now, when you earn $2.77 an hour, you live off of your tips. And if you get sick, guess what? You still have to go to work to get those tips. There's no way to get tips if you're living off tips by staying at home sick. So you will go to work when you're sick especially because in Washington, D.C., in 2008, paid sick days legislation was passed. But in yet another one of those backdoor deals, the National Restaurant Association and the local restaurant association managed to sneak into the bill at the very last minute an exemption for tipped workers, which means in our nation's capital, everybody has paid sick days except the people who touch your food. So Ung was one of these tipped workers in Washington, D.C., earning $2.77 an hour, no paid sick days. One day he's working at this posh fine dining restaurant, starts to feel a little woozy. Next day he's feeling dizzy, he can barely stand, he finds himself actually not being able to see things very well. Third day he's barely able to stand on his feet, but he's got to keep coming to work. A few more days like that, before one day he can't even get out of bed. And he spends a month coming in and out of a coma before he says to himself, I don't have health care. I, of course, don't have paid sick days. But I think I need to find out what this is before it kills me. So he decides to go find a doctor who will take mercy on him and maybe see him for free. And he decides maybe there's a doctor in Koreatown in Washington, D.C. who will see me for free. And he's right. He finds a doctor who actually sees him for free and tells him that he has H1N1, better known as swine flu. Ung suffers another month like this in bed, goes into $10,000 in credit card debt before he finally feels better. And he calls the posh restaurant and says he's ready to come back. And they say, sorry, we've replaced you. And Ung says, you know, I was young. I had an education, I was able to find another restaurant job fairly quickly, I worked my way over many years out of $10,000 in credit card debt, but I always think about the workers that I infected at that restaurant. People with families, people with children, some immigrants for whom $10,000 in debt would have completely wiped them out. What about the customers? How many customers would I have infected with the swine flu? I'll never know. I'll never know because it was not important enough to that restaurant or frankly to this industry to ensure that the people who are serving us are not sick themselves. In fact, the world's largest restaurant corporation is Darden, a company which is the world's largest full-service restaurant company that many people have never heard of. Darden is the brand that owns Olive Garden, Red Lobster, Capital Grill Steakhouse, Longhorn Steakhouse, Seasons 52, Bahamas Breeze, Yard House, Eddie V's, and so many other brands, I can't even list them. And back in 2011, Darden announced a partnership with Michelle Obama and her Let's Move campaign, saying that they were going to provide healthy food for kids at the Olive Garden. Well, the same moment they made that announcement with Michelle Obama, a server in a Fayetteville, North Carolina olive garden was forced to work with hepatitis A.
because she didn't have paid sick days. And 3,000 people had to get tested for Hep A, forced by the local health department, filed a consumer class action against the restaurant, and won. And that same year, there were two norovirus outbreaks. I told you norovirus is the winter stomach flu. There were two norovirus outbreaks in Olive Gardens, one in Indiana and one in Illinois. And I ask you, how healthy can the food be for your kids if you are going to expose them to hepatitis A and stomach flu? It can't be that healthy, not just for you and your family, but for the workers, for their coworkers, even for the employers. This is a public health disaster, and it is certainly a moral disaster that people are living off their tips to the point where they cannot afford to do anything except work all the time. Fortunately, there's good news on the way. After many years of fighting together with coalition partners, there is finally a bill in Congress that would raise that abysmally low minimum wage of $2.13 an hour. It is called the Fair Minimum Wage Act of 2013. And it would raise the regular minimum wage for all workers to $10, and it would raise the tip minimum wage for the first time in two decades to 70% of that, or $7. And it would continue to rise with the cost of living. It's a great big deal for us because it was the first time that leadership in the House and the Senate introduced a bill that would overcome the legacy of Herman Cain. And yet, when it was introduced, Congress members said to us, to overcome the power of the other NRA, we are going to need to see a groundswell of public support, which is ridiculous because this issue polls 71% in favor among Republicans and Democrats alike. So who exactly is Congress listening to, if not all of their constituents? They've been listening to the National Restaurant Association. So this bill has a chance if we can demonstrate a groundswell of public support. And we thought about that. Where had we seen a groundswell in this industry? And in fact, we had seen one. About five years ago or so, Eric Schlosser's book, Fast Food Nation, came out. Michael Pollan's book, Omnivore's Dilemma, came out. And we saw a sea change in our industry, consumer demand leading to people asking, is this local, is this organic, and restaurants jumping over themselves to say, I provide locally sourced organic cuisine, whether or not they did. And we believe that same kind of consumer demand can change this industry. So we are asking for three things from everybody who eats out, who has a conscience, who eats at all. The first thing is to read the book. The book is our omnivore's dilemma. It is our fast food nation. It is our way to educate consumers and let them know what is happening behind the kitchen door. We are asking that you spread the word and tell people to buy the book, read it. Danny Glover's movie company has created a series of beautiful short film portraits based on the workers and employers profiled in the book that you can watch. There's a lot that we can do. And actually, you can find the book on our website, rockunited, rocunited.org, where you can also donate to support the organization that is lifting up the voices of workers and employers and consumers. So that's number one. Buy the book, support the organization. Number two is to actually go to the new consumer website that we've created to collectivize the voices of people who eat out who also want to say enough is enough. It's called thewelcometable.net, 
and already over 100,000 consumers have signed a petition asking Congress to raise that abysmally low minimum wage of $2.13 an hour. Also on that website, you can find a guide that we've created that Paul mentioned and a smartphone app that you can download for free on your smartphone called the ROC National Diner's Guide that tells you how the restaurants around you are faring on issues of wages and benefits and promotions. But the third and most important thing you can do, and you know, often sometimes when I make these talks, actually it happened today, I spoke in Washington DC and I heard somebody say, gosh, I should just tip better. And I always say, that's great. Please do tip well when you eat out, but that cannot be all that you do. Because if that's all that we all do, we continue to subsidize an industry that expects us to pay its workers' wages for it. So besides tipping well, we are asking that at the end of your meal, you go up to your manager or the owner and say, I love the food, I love the service. I would love to see you provide a livable wage, or I would love to see you provide paid sick days. I would love to see you promote from within. I would love to see you create a diverse working environment. I would love to see these things, and I'm a paying customer, and I want to keep supporting you, but I want to see this change. And if it feels uncomfortable to say something, we've actually, we have sample tweets in the app. You can just tweet the management, or you can leave a note in your, on your bill but it's important that we communicate because just as asking for locally sourced organic potatoes or organic strawberries or wanting to know how our chicken was treated or our pork was treated made a change in our industry, so too can these words. And I will give you a quick story of how I've done it. When my first daughter, who's now three, was born, we took her for one of those special, wonderful, intimate moments, a little vacation to a little beach town in California, great locally sourcing organic vegetarian restaurant and we were having one of those special wonderful moments in a restaurant taking pictures of the newborn baby having a great time but i happened to notice that all the servers were white and all the bussers were latina and segregation by race and gender in our industry is actually pretty severe we've done a number of studies where we've sent pairs, hundreds of pairs, of white and people of color applicants into fine dining restaurants to see who gets hired as fine dining waitstaff and bartending positions. We found that white applicants have twice the chance of getting one of these jobs even when the person of color has a better resume. And we've reported this, and sometimes the response is, well, isn't it just that all these folks can't speak English or they're illegal and that's why they're not waiters? So we tested that as well. We gave the white applicants an unintelligible European accent, and we gave the people of color a very slight non-European accent. And we found that for white workers, any kind of accent, even unintelligible, was a bonus in getting a job, and that for the people of color, any kind of accent was a detractor. So we knew it wasn't accent or language, we knew it was race. And that's what I saw in this restaurant. In fact, I encourage you to go to any fine dining restaurant in Baltimore or DC or in the region and look at who are the servers, who are the bussers, who's in the kitchen. Well, I saw this, and at the end of my meal, we paid, my husband took the baby out, I went up to the manager, I said, I love the food, I love the service, but I happened to notice that all the servers are white and all the bussers are Latina. What kind of training and promotion opportunities have you offered these women? I think they'd be great servers. And he said, well, 
I don't think any of them want to be servers. None of them have ever asked me to be a server. Which, you know, I, I thought about, you know, that might be true. If you've never seen anybody who looks like you in a server position, why would you ever ask for a promotion? So I said, I appreciate that, but I gotta say, it's important to me as a paying customer to see that people have the opportunity to advance. I think these women would be great servers. And gosh, is it important to me as a new mother that my little daughter, who's brown, grows up seeing people of every skin color in every position in a restaurant so she knows she can do whatever she wants when she grows up. And it isn't that I thought that my one comment was going to change that restaurant forever, but I do think in the same way that restaurant had become a locally sourcing organic restaurant over the last decade because of consumer demand, that if another half a dozen people had said something over the next couple months, you better believe that restaurant would have done something about it. So that is why we are asking for this change, for this intervention, which we need now so desperately. This industry impacts so many millions of workers, so many hundreds of millions of family members of those workers, and frankly, our entire economy and our health. It impacts these workers. It even impacts these employers who experience a 300% turnover rate because workers are moving constantly from job to job because they cannot support themselves or their families on these wages. And it also impacts every single one of us who eats out. Thank you. So I think we actually only have 13 minutes to answer questions. Um, so do you want to say a minute, Paul? And then I do want to have some time for questions. Well, I'll, <clears throat> excuse me. I'll try to talk for just a minute. Um, I just want to tell you something about what I have observed in the restaurant industry in Baltimore and one restaurant in particular, which I won't name. I would like to be able to name it, but it's probably better not to name it at this point. <clears throat> and the library asked me not to, uh, so I won't. But this is a restaurant that does really massively steal wages. In the case of servers, they virtually don't pay the servers at all. They take the attitude that the servers work for themselves. They have to pay them a little bit, of course, but they pay them for far fewer hours than the hours actually worked. And in a number of other cases, similar things happen. They don't pay overtime. Uh, I know of a case that was reported to me. I didn't observe it personally, but it was reported in a reliable way uh, of a person who worked 12-hour days, 14 days in a row with no days off and had a hard time getting paid for two 40-hour weeks. This restaurant also gives no benefits of any kind. Well, they can do a few nice things for you when you come in, give you free food, but benefits in the sense of things that are going to take care of you as, as you move through life or as something happens to you, you get nothing. If you're not working, you have no money coming in. Well, let's just suppose, just analytically, that something happens, right? You have an illness, you get disabled, you can't work. What are you going to rely on? In the first instance, you're going to have to rely on Social Security safety net programs, such programs as Social Security Disability, and there are others. Sorry, I'm trying to talk fast. <laughs> well, guess what? All these programs are tied to wages. So when the restaurant steals your wages, as it is, it's also stealing your benefits in the same act. 
This is a point not very well understood by the people who work in this restaurant or by people who work in some other restaurants. And incidentally, this restaurant never informs people about what the wage and hour laws are. Now, I said I wanted to give you a kind of analytical, kind of summary remark about this restaurant, and I have. Now I want to say this is a situation that has really occurred. A person who worked in this restaurant became ill, was unable to continue to work, had no wages coming in, had no benefits of any kind coming in for the restaurant, found that she was unable to live on the Social Security benefits that she was able to get, right, was reduced to poverty. It's not a tragic story. She hasn't lost everything. She's not living in the street. But it's a very disturbing story. And it's going to happen again. The people who work in this restaurant are middle-aged people. Sarah alluded to this. They often have families. They're often the main wage earner for their families. They're often the source of benefits for their families, right? This is going to happen again. This is the human consequence of restaurant practices that exist in Baltimore. Thanks. I'll turn it back to Sarah. So we wanted to open it up for questions and comments. workers, uh, which is a very high-risk job, they are also paid much less than they should be. Uh, you know, they have to use their own vehicle, buy their own gas, and so on. Mm -hmm. So I was wondering whether uh, you uh, paid some attention to Yeah. The you mean delivery workers? Yeah. Delivery workers obviously don't just work for pizza restaurants. They work for all different kinds of restaurants. And they actually can also be paid a sub-minimum wage, not 213. There's a different sub-minimum wage, which is about 465 for delivery workers. Um, and they, ex they experience all kinds of exposure to violence, to health and safety issues. So we actually, in New York, did a special study of delivery workers in particular, and we found that they were, you know, there was a rate of about one to two near deaths or deaths each year among delivery workers and not just traffic accidents but being stabbed you know having to go to all different kinds of places and facing all different kinds of violence being robbed being assaulted and then not being actually in any way supported reimbursed helped by the employer so absolutely it's an important component of the industry and also today Ban Ki-moon said uh, we should all fight poverty so uh, you know, poverty has been rising in America. Things of this nature will definitely contribute to more poverty, mm -hmm. more aggravation. And restaurant industry is producing annual revenue of nearly $700 billion, which is not a small sum. Yep, they're doing quite well. Uh, hi, I'm Alan with uh, Working People's Newsletter, and I'm a proud union member. Um, I want to salute the restaurant workers that have been going on strike. I've heard that it's now 58 cities. And um, I think a lot of people don't understand that they're really at the cutting edge of the labor movement. And they're fighting for all workers, even if they don't realize it. 
And they're teaching us things that our national union leaders uh, choose to forget that strikes work. And um, I'm wondering, in addition to the demands for raising the minimum wage up to like $15, I've heard of in some cases, which is what we really need, um, you know, nobody should resist raising it to $10 when these, if these laws get passed. Also in Maryland, they're trying that. Are they making other demands? For example, uh, People's Organization for Progress is holding a conference in uh, Newark, New Jersey on October 19th and looking at issues like the minimum wage, but also calling for jobs for all. And um, I think, you know, if we have jobs available for everybody, we'd have job security and, you know, we'd be able to fight for higher wages that way as well. Um, are there any other demands they're making uh, that, that I haven't heard about in the news other than uh, the minimum wage increases? Yeah, so our Rock does not actually run the fast food worker strikes. We've been supportive. Um, you know, it's definitely an ally. And we support, obviously, restaurant workers standing up. And I totally agree with you that I think um, these workers have surprised everybody, have surprised the very union that actually organized them to stand up, surprised them in their force and their willingness to come out and in the issues that they presented, that it actually wasn't just about wages. And in many cities across the country, you do have committees of fast food workers in various localities fighting for issues like, um, you know, small worker store level issues, like, you know, not stealing out of the tip jar or, um, you know, uniform-related issues. A lot of restaurant workers are forced to pay for their uniforms, which is actually illegal, you know, or being forced to work in extremely hot or unhealthy or unsafe conditions. So definitely these workers have formed committees across the country. They're taking on these smaller store-level issues. Their broad national claim is around $15 an hour. There are some cities where they're also asking for the right to organize a union, actually. So it isn't just that one demand. It varies from city to city. That demand's the only demand that unifies that campaign across the country. Yes, yes, I haven't had a chance to read your book yet. <laughs> Got to buy it after the talk. But I was wondering a couple things. Is there a way to get on contact list? Or I, I didn't, I couldn't, I was trying to find the website. I really wasn't successful in that. Yes, so definitely. Thank you for asking the question. Um, do we have a sign-up sheet today? So uh, okay, I came in please uh, put okay. sign up, give, put your email down. Okay. We can send you updates and information. Uh, and the two websites you should okay. check out are rockunited, rocunited.org, okay. and thewelcometable.net, where you can sign this petition to raise the wage. And on Rock United's website, you'll find studies and issues and pol I mean, just everything we've ever done related to a wide range of issues from wages to race and gender discrimination, sexual harassment, which is pretty severe in our industry, to, you know, paid sick days. And I guess my question was, you mentioned the success in California. Mm -hmm. and I was wondering um, your thoughts on how that could be spread to, say, Maryland and other places, and also the national legislation that you mentioned. Uh, if you maybe talk a little sure. bit about that, that'd be great. So uh, California, um, like I said, decided to raise its wage to $10 an hour for the entire state for tipped and non-tipped workers alike. And there was a bill moving through the state of Maryland that would raise the wage here as well. not with parity, though, between tipped and non-tipped workers. So it will be coming back very soon here in Maryland in the state legislature. And my hope is that uh, not only will the tip 
be tip minimum wage be increased and pegged to the overall minimum wage at at least 70%. But actually now, a number of states and localities that are part of our movement around the country are demanding to get rid of this ridiculous lower tip minimum wage altogether. And saying, look, no worker should receive less than the minimum wage, right? Um, so that's actually a growing movement around the country. But here in the state of Maryland, there will be legislation soon that uh, is going, will be going through the state legislature to raise both the regular and the tip minimum wage. What we need everybody here to do as Maryland residents is to call on your state legislators to make sure that tipped workers are not left out in the last-minute closed-door deal that occurs all the time. It just happened in New York State. The minimum wage went up. Tipped workers are left out. just happened in Connecticut. right? I told you it happened in D.C. with the paid sick days ordinance. We cannot let that happen anymore. How do you do? Um, I went to a restaurant a long time ago. And the waitress told me uh, something about tipping, which I didn't know anything about. Part of her tip has to go to the cook. And I, I did not know that. And I think she told me that the cook would make it hard on her if she didn't come up with some money. That's all I have to say. <laughs> Well, it's true that tipped workers do have to share their tips. They should not be sharing them with cooks. They should only be sharing them with other service workers, which include runners and bussers and bartenders, other workers who interact with the public. When tipped workers are asked to share tips with what we call the back of the house, cooks, preps, dishwashers, or with management, that is illegal. And according to US federal law, if that happens, the restaurant worker can actually be paid back the difference between the tipped and the regular minimum wage for every hour that person has worked in the restaurant. So any inappropriate sharing of tips breaks down the entire system in a restaurant and allows workers to sue for all of that money that they've lost between the tipped and the regular minimum wage. Hello, how are you doing? Hi. Uh, my concern is this, uh, when you go into work in a restaurant, you don't have a contract. If you worked in a restaurant, if you have, have you? No, because 99 points. question. When you go into a restaurant, you sign. It says what? You're a non-contractual worker. You don't have a contract. At any given time, they don't have to show cause. At any given time, mm -hmm. dude, you could cough. Mm -hmm. You could show up with earrings. You, you could have. Uh, this is this is a one day you have to go off. Guess what? You don't show up. What happens? You work there ten years, twenty-five years. Does this is Baltimore? I've seen them. They change management. Same people. Mm -hmm. Just change the numbers. If you don't have a contract. You have no, you can't show cause, right? Mm -hmm. So we could sit down. You can't unionize because you don't have a contract. No, you can If you all... don't have a contract, you 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 are you are you're being hired at will. At, mm -hmm. They don't have to show cause to fire you. Um, in Baltimore, so at least in not... Maryland, that's 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 that's, that's, a, that's the case. So if you do not have a union, it's true, you can be fired at, uh, you know, at will, but you do you have, have the right to organize, always. 
You do have the right to organize a union. I'm sorry, can I answer your question? I apologize, I'm sorry. Okay, it's okay. On the same side. I understand. I just, there are other people waiting to ask a question as well. (laughs) Thank you. So you do have the right to organize, right? And you do have the right, even without a union, to be to actually be able to speak up against conditions on the job together with your coworkers and not be retaliated against. And we've actually gotten workers reinstated or we've gotten them, you know, we fought against retaliation and won because they came together, stood up with their coworkers, even without a union, and said, we demand change. We demand a higher wage. We demand whatever they demand. So you don't actually need a union to have that protection. Contract. Thanks. You have the contract. If you get a contract, someone says, guess what, I'll work for you, I'm good. Otherwise, it's Walmart. Thanks. I was just going to say, um, I worked in the Fenwick Crab House, and this is like 83, I think it was. So, you know, there was like the muffin oven, the potato oven, um, the clam casino oven, the plate warming oven, and the steam table. And they would not allow the back door to be open because they were worried about theft. So I really started feeling like I was going to faint. And I thought, you know, the floor is tile and there's a sharp edge on the table. I better sit down rather than, you know, like waiting until I fall. So, you know, the guy was like, stand, you know, get back to, you know. So anyway, I stood up again, but there was, then I came to a point where I thought I was going to faint again. So I sat down a second time and he fired me. So I thought, well, two days later, I just showed up when I was supposed to work. I thought I would just try that, like just show up as if I was... And he's like, don't you understand? You were fired. (laughs) So about a month later, I went back to collect my last paycheck. And like all the salad girls, which is about seven people, were all different. That's one story. The second story, I worked in the Pizza Hut. And again, I believe it was actually 209 at that time. This is like 20 years ago or maybe more. And they forced you to do cleaning jobs, like wash down things in the kitchen, like even the baseboards wash them down with bleach solution and stuff like that. So basically, instead of paying the cook's minimum wage, they made the waitresses do that kind of stuff. And obviously, we were getting no tips at that time. So those are my stories. I don't, the, the sexual harassment is like too embarrassing, so I'm not going to even go into it. <laughs> Thank you for Thanks. sharing. Thank you. Um, well, some of my questions just got answered, but I was curious. What happens if you're an individual worker and you learn about right violations and confront your boss? I imagine there'd be a big fear of consequences because they might just say, well, we'll hire someone who will do it anyways. Absolutely. So that's why we don't recommend doing it alone. We recommend joining an organization like Rock, who we can help train you how to join together with coworkers who can say these things because you're not actually protected on your own. You're protected when you get together with other people and say enough is enough. So we encourage you to go to Rock United's website and become a member. Reach out to us. We can support you. We've actually created a website called livingofftips.com where anybody who's worked in the industry, which maybe most people here, can share your stories of what it's like to live off of tips. And celebrities are also sharing their stories on that, that website of their experiences living off of tips, and anybody can. So we really invite and encourage the stories like we've heard today. Thank you so much.